This is KBOO Portland. The time now is 11 o'clock. Coming up next on the Digital Divide, Dr. Joel Moskowitz is the director of the UC, UC Berkeley Center for Family and Community Health. Don't forget that you can hear all of these programs, including Film at 11, after they air on kboo.fm or on iTunes and Google Play. All of these cable programs are made possible by member support. If you'd like to become a member, go to kboo.fm or use our mobile app and click on Donate. KBU Community Radio holds an open meeting concerning the operations and programming of KBU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBU Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Meetings will be conducted at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, unless otherwise noted. The Program Advisory Committee meets the second Tuesday of each month at 6 p.m. Please call 503-231-8032 to verify if a meeting is being held. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of Project Northwest's third show on Saturday, August 10th at 10 p.m. at the Atlantis Lounge in Portland. Project Northwest is a local zine that helps promote hip-hop and R&B artists who are local to the Pacific Northwest, with an emphasis on showcasing artists who are Black and POC, LGBTQIA+, women, and artists who experience disabilities. Their upcoming showcase features Timmy Hendrix, Zenith, Charlie Fairfax, and Kayla J. Again, that's Project Northwest's third show on Saturday, August 10th at 10 p.m. at the Atlantis Lounge, 3552 North Mississippi Avenue in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. The 2018 Winter Olympics were arguably the most high-tech games in history. From that swarm of lights that formed a snowboarder at the opening ceremonies to those virtual reality headsets that let spectators watch some of their favorite events like they were right there. South Korea also demonstrated the capability and speed of the next generation of wireless technology, 5G. The race 
is on to develop newer, faster cellular networks. Some companies are already touting 5G systems that will be up and running in certain cities next year. But the network as a whole likely won't be fully functional till 2020. The promise is to connect nearly every aspect of our lives over an incredibly fast, reliable wireless network. And companies are spending billions to make sure they aren't left behind. But what is 5G? I mean, it's faster, but how does it actually compare to every other generation? To understand, let's look back. First, there was 1G, the network those early bulky cell phones worked on. Second generation added the ability to send text messages, pictures too, hello emojis. But then enter 3G. It basically turned our cell phones into mini internet-connected computers. And 4G made them fast enough to stream all the cat videos you could ever want. 5G takes it even one step further, and about a hundred times faster. So how might that change our lives? Well, Renee Filipponi went looking for answers. There's some hands that I There's see. There's some hands. There's one. <laughs> There's the other one. You've okay. got robot hands now. You can pick up any item now, what, what, do with I the have triggers. To click them? You have to click the trigger like that. Oh, yeah. My there hands are moving. With a pair of high-tech glasses, you can escape into a virtual world without leaving this Toronto soundstage. Okay, so like what I'm seeing right now, let's say we had 5G, what yep. would this experience be like? The, this experience would be in your real world. So you wouldn't so I'd be, be in, walking down the street. Yeah, you could be walking down the street and you could pick this up and say, oh, I want a coffee. You could order your coffee directly from it. Alan Smithson is a developer in VR and augmented reality and says while the potential for this technology is endless, he warns tech innovation is fast approaching a wall. We've seen an enormous growth in the last few years, and we've gone from you know, headsets that make people sick, we've solved those problems by increasing the frame rates, increasing the resolution, but as you increase the resolution of these screens, of course you have to push more data. That's it, like clicking a mouse. And right now, the networks can't push all of that data. If glasses aren't wired, they can only handle small amounts of data and perform specific tasks. Venus, and it's like right there in front of me. Penny walks in, on location. She has to set up the space for a product unveil for a group of clients. The device maps the room in order to construct a digital map of the space. What you see here is next generation hand tracking. Wireless 5G could make its reach virtually limitless. So I think in 10, 10 years out, so we're in 2028 and Everybody wears a pair of glasses now instead of a smartphone, and those glasses now recognize you. So it recognizes you, your name pops up, so I know, okay, I know who you are, I know maybe your LinkedIn profile pops up. We have um, this camera, which is recording the position of this ball on this plate. This Nokia video shows the difference in speed between 4 and 5G. The three white robots are programmed to balance the ball. It only takes the one on 5G three seconds. The 4G network takes 11. A network powerful enough to safely run a hyper-connected world beyond your cell phone with millions of self-driving cars, delivery drones, smart homes, and even entire cities. But there's a catch. This fast internet travels on tiny wavelengths, much shorter than the ones the current 4G networks work on. That means cell towers or receptors will need to be much closer. Right now, the 4G range is about 70 kilometers. 5G can only travel a very short 300 meters. So future networks will need thousands of mini base stations everywhere, all over a city to relay the signals. Much more complex and much more expensive. Companies around the world are already investing tens of billions of dollars, fighting to be the leaders in 5G. Getting left behind isn't an option. All else being equal, uh, none of the Canadian players are all that much more ahead or behind, you know, than others. In the beginning, for the average cell phone user, 5G will mean access to a lot more data. The ability to download things like a movie in the blink of an eye. So much bandwidth will be available, you won't have to worry about going over on your data plan. Today, it's a big deal when these guys give us, you know, 10 gigabits of data a month for 60 bucks or whatever it is. Um, this will be much, much bigger buckets of data, almost that you don't 
really maybe have to pay attention to it. How did the, uh, For Alberto yeah, Leon Garcia, it's um, much bigger the, than that. The University of Toronto professor works with grad students to develop smart and connected cities. We have here something like 10,000 streams for all of the GTA, but the, the target in 5G is a million streams per square kilometer. Per square kilometer. Square kilometers. But this area would have millions, or a million. A million. Yeah. Those dots on the map represent wireless sensors in the roads, on cars and buses, feeding out all kinds of information. Going forward, those sensors will be nearly everywhere. A network that can be deployed uh, densely enough to get enough of uh, the right data uh, to be able to make smart decisions. It's all that information from those sensors that will make a world of autonomous vehicles possible and safe, allowing cars, roads, streetlights, all the ability to communicate at lightning speeds. 5G also has the potential to fundamentally change the way cities work. And to reduce carbon footprint, uh, make better use of energy, uh, make transportation better. Uh, the ability to collect, to deploy sensors, collect data, and then do smart things to reduce carbon footprint, for example, uh, all of those are possible over the near future. And right now, small parts of those networks are already being built. I am in the upper levels of Rogers Centre in Toronto, and if you look up there, you will see one of dozens of new cell antennas installed to support 5G technology. It's what the future of wireless will look like with a fully functioning lightning speed network that will be a reality in some parts of the world in just a couple of years. Renee Filipponi, CBC News, Toronto. This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast that features full-length lectures and conversations that happen at UC Berkeley. Find more talks at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Now I would like to introduce our speaker, Dr. Joel Moskowitz, director of the UC Berkeley Center for Family and Community Health. Um, so he has conducted research on disease prevention programs and policies for more than 30 years. He is an advisor to the International EMF Scientist Appeal, signed by more than 240 scientists who published peer-reviewed research on EMR or electromagnetic radiation. Last year, he won a James Madison Freedom of Information Award for his work that culminated in the state of California publishing um, the cell phone radiation safety guidelines, which are on your handout. There's a staple handout and they're right on there. Um, so you can learn more on his website, saferemr.com. And please join me in welcoming Dr. Joel Moskowitz. Uh, thank you, Kim. I'd like to thank uh, the University Health Services for inviting me to do this keynote presentation. I'd also like to thank the School of Public Health for co-sponsoring the event, and especially like to thank Kim for uh, coordinating uh, the event today. I got involved in this issue by accident in 2009 when uh, my center sponsored a visiting scientist from the National Cancer Center of South Korea who worked with a team of uh, researchers uh, and with us on two meta-analyses, which are quantitative reviews of the literature. And one of the meta-analyses dealt with mobile phone use and tumor risk. And uh, when that was published, he had gone back to, to South Korea. So I was left with uh, having to field media requests from uh, journalists from virtually all over the world who were very concerned about the findings of our meta-analysis at the time. And uh, since then, I've been following the literature very closely, studying the literature and uh, writing about it and lecturing about it and, and trying to bring uh, reporters up to speed on how to cover this uh, complex topic and uh, set of research, which has evolved considerably uh, since 2009. So I first want to go over some basic inf information to give you an overview of what the issues are that we're dealing with. I'm going to focus on the radiation risk. I'm not going to talk about the benefits of cell phones because I think you're all quite aware of the benefits of cell phones and smartphones. In fact, I'd be surprised if there's anyone in the audience who doesn't have one currently. I'm not going to fo focus on this, the social problems. 
which range from privacy and security issues to varieties of inappropriate use or problematic use, including uh, addictive behaviors, which are increasing all the time. At the national level, we're increasingly seeing a potential cybersecurity problem with regard to the infrastructure that the cell phone relies upon. And there's a lot of controversy around the cybersecurity issues and which technology out of China is safe to use and which is not. Beginning in 1984, uh, we have fairly inelegant uh, cell phone, which didn't actually work very well because they often didn't get receptivity due to very few cell towers in the country. And uh, over time, the cell phone has become more elegant. It also has evolved from a single function, which was basically operating as a cell phone, to include texting, uh, game playing, music playing, to uh, becoming an internet delivery device. And with each of these uh, increases in, in functions, a numerous social problems began to evolve around these different, different uses. There is a symbiotic relationship between cell phones and cell towers, at least currently. You can't have cell phone reception without these cell antennas. Uh, industry is trying to get away, I think, from using these cell antennas. By sh and because uh, although we have a love affair with the cell phone, uh, at best people are ambivalent about having these cell towers, especially in their neighborhood. Uh, so they've been experimenting with things like drones and hot air balloons, and there's even proposals to put up thousands of mini satellites to provide the, the medium on which your, your cell phone can operate, your smartphone can operate. The Industry Association, CTIA, and I'll talk more about their rather nefarious role in all of this. Uh, this is the lobbyist group for the wireless or cellular industry in the U.S. Uh, they engage in a lot of lobbying. They coordinate the lobbying of the various uh, cell phone companies and manufacturers. Uh, the industry as a whole spends about $100 million a year lobbying the Congress. They also do lobbying at the state level and occasionally get involved in local level politics and lawsuits. Uh, so you can see the rapid growth in, in connections. Not all of these connections are to cell phones, however, because there are other devices that rely on cellular subscriptions, uh, such as tablets. Uh, it's, oops, get these buttons down. As you can see, this is a big, big business. Uh, it's also a huge business globally, not just in the US. Uh, there's roughly 5 billion subscriber connections worldwide. Uh, so this is an industry that's probably been unparalleled uh, in terms of any other industry in the, in the history of the world, in terms of its reach. And uh, this is important too, 88 hours per year is what the estimate is from the industry in terms of our average voice use. So over a 10-year period, the, the typical person would get something like 880 hours of cumulative call time. And we'll get back to that later when we look at some of the epidemiology. Smartphones sort of became popularized by the iPhone in 2007, and you can see the rapid up, uptake in terms of use in the United States. Uh, so the current estimate, or at least the estimate as of 2017, is uh, 273 million smartphones in use in this country. It's hard to find good um, prevalence data in terms of use of this, these devices. Uh, this is a survey the Pew Research Center did with parents of teens uh, and roughly 95% of uh, teenagers in the U.S., 13 to 17 years of age, uh, have either have a cell phone or have access to a uh, smartphone, according to this survey. I was unable to find uh, reliable data on use among children under the age of 13, but I suspect the prevalence of ownership there or access to smartphones is also very high. The industry, particularly CTIA, has been pushing parents to give their kids cell phones younger and younger. Uh, and there's a lot of pressure I hear from parents of young children uh, for providing them with access to a smartphone. Uh, concurrent with the uptake of cell phones, we've seen a de decline in, the, uh, in access to landline phones. In fact, at this point, majority of households in the US as of 2018 are wireless only, they do not have a landline phone. 
uh, and this has changed rapidly uh, since I've been following this issue in 2009, uh, the uptake of uh, cell phones and the decline in landline phones. As a result, then, uh, people have become totally dependent for telecommunications on their cell phone or smartphone. So how does a cell phone call work? Uh, I'll just go over this really quickly. Basically, when you go to make a call, you've got this two-way radio. It's, it's actually a radio and a transmitter, so it's, it's kind of misleading to call it a two-way radio, but uh, they tend to refer to it as just a radio. It transmits a signal to the nearest cell tower. Each cell tower sort of has a geographic cell, so to speak, in which it can communicate with uh, cell phones in the, within that geographic region or cell. And then that cell tower communicates with a switching station, which then uh, searches for who you're trying to call, and it either connects uh, through uh, copper cable or fiber optics, or in some cases through a wireless connection, through microwave radiation, with, with the wireless access point. And then that access point then either communicates with a, directly through, through copper wires through a landline, or it can, if you're trying to call another cell phone, it will then send a signal to a cell tower within the cell of the receiver, and so forth. The radiation from your cell phone is going out usually in all directions, in this direction, though, it's, it's being absorbed by your head. Uh, this little child is, is absorbing it and is largely in his brain and neck area, much of the radiation. A lot of the radiation is wasted, so there is an energy conservation issue with regard to all of this that has been not very well studied, but there's a lot of wasted energy. And then uh, some of that radiation will reach the uh, tower and enable you to make the communication. So what we see here is, is the electromagnetic spectrum. The spectrum displays all types of electromagnetic fields arrayed by the frequency or the length of the waves. On the far right are the highest frequency waves, which are considered ionizing radiation, for example, X-rays. This radiation has sufficient energy to knock electrons out of their orbits, causing an atom to become charged or ionized, which can directly cause chemical changes and DNA damage. It can also indirectly cause such damage, and in fact, the estimates are 30 to 50 percent of the damage is actually indirect. Ionizing radiation is known to be cancer-causing or carcinogenic since the 1930s. On the far left are extremely low-frequency waves that oscillate up to 3,000 cycles per second, which is also known as Hertz, H-E-R-T-Z, these waves can produce strong magnetic fields. Radio waves occur at the higher frequencies, and the highest frequency radio waves are called microwaves or millimeter waves. Cell phones and cordless phones are two-way radios that transmit microwaves. Uh, they will soon also be transmitting millimeter waves. Cell phones can emit up to two watts of power. In contrast, a microwave oven can emit 1,000 watts whereas the oven has sufficient power to significantly heat tissue. Wire phone, wireless phones generally do not except when held next to the body. Cell towers, cell phones, and other wireless devices emit microwaves that are modulated or pulsed to encode voice and data. Also, the systems that power these devices emit low-frequency electromagnetic fields. With the upcoming fifth generation of cellular technology known as 5G, you may be seeing a lot of this in the, in the media currently. Cell phones and cell towers will employ lower frequency and higher frequency microwaves than in current use. Also, for the first time, this technology will employ millimeter waves, where, which are much higher in frequency than microwaves. The millimeter waves can't travel very far, and they're blocked by structures and foliage. In fact, some of the frequencies are blocked by water vapor, fog, rain, so the industry estimates that it will need 800,000 new cell antenna sites, and each of these sites may have cell antennas from various uh, cell phone providers, uh, and each of these antennas may have microarrays consisting of dozens or even perhaps hundreds of little antennas, uh, which will be needed in the near future in the, in the U.S. Roughly two and a half times uh, more antenna sites than in current use we will see uh, deployed in the next few years unless the wireless safety advocates and uh, their representatives in, in Congress or, or the judicial system puts a halt to this. 
Millimeter wave radiation is largely absorbed in the skin, the sweat glands, the peripheral nerves, the eyes, and the testes, based upon the body of research that's been done on millimeter waves. In addition, this radiation may cause hypersensitivity, which I'll talk about more later, and biochemical alterations in the immune and circulatory systems, the heart, the liver, kidneys, and brain. Millimeter waves can also harm insects and promote the growth of drug-resistant pathogens. So it's going to have some pretty widespread uh, environmental effects for our, the microenvironments around these cell antenna sites. Cell phones, cell towers, and other wireless devices are regulated by most governments. In 1996, the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, adopted exposure guidelines that limit the intensity of exposure to radio frequency radiation. These guidelines were designed to prevent significant heating of tissue from short-term exposure to radio frequency radiation. Our government's safety guidelines were not designed to protect us from the effects of long-term exposure to low-intensity radio frequency radiation. Yet, the preponderance of the research published since 1996 finds adverse biologic and health effects from long-term exposure to low levels of modulated or pulsed radio frequency radiation, such as produced by uh, cell phones, cordless phones, other wireless devices, Wi-Fi. In 2001, based upon the biologic and human epidemiologic research, low-frequency magnetic fields were classified as possibly carcinogenic by the International Agency for Research on Cancer of the World Health Organization. This agency is often called by its acronym IARC, I-A-R-C. In 2011, IARC classified radio frequency radiation as possibly carcinogenic to humans based upon studies of cell phone radiation and brain tumor risk in humans. Currently, we have considerably more evidence that would warrant a stronger classification. The crux of the health and safety problem we face today was stated by the FDA in 1999. The FCC regulations are, quote, based on protection from acute injury from thermal or heating effects of radio frequency radiation exposure and may not be protective against any non-thermal effects of chronic exposure, unquote. Yet since 1999, the preponderance of thousands of peer-reviewed studies have found biologic and health effects from chronic exposure to non-thermal levels of microwave radiation and low-frequency fields. To further complicate matters, a smartphone typically has five different types of microwave transmitters, including three different cellular technologies, and soon with 5G they will be adding another cellular technology, along with Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. Some transmitters operate at multiple frequencies, and some transmitters can operate simultaneously with others, exposing the user to a complex mixture of radiation. In the next few years, most new smartphones will emit several types of 5G radiation, in addition to these, some of these earlier forms of cellular radiation. None of these types of radiation has been tested to ensure that long-term exposure is safe. To reduce the risk of harm, individuals should adopt the following behaviors. First, minimize your use of cell phones and cordless phones. Use a landline whenever possible. Second, distance is your friend. Keeping your phone 10 inches from your body as compared to a tenth of an inch results not in a hundredfold reduction, but a 10,000-fold reduction in exposure. So keep your phone away from your head and body. Store your phone in a purse or backpack and text or use a wired headset or speakerphone for calls. Third, cell phones are programmed to increase radiation when reception is poor. A new study published by the California Department of Public Health in preparation of the guidelines they released already found up to a 10,000-fold increase in exposure when reception was poor, that is, one or two display bars on your phone. Thus, use your phone only when the signal is strong. For example, do not use it in an elevator or in a vehicle as metal structures interfere with the signal. For additional tips, see uh, my electromagnetic radiation safety handout, which you received today, or the guidance published by the California Department of Public Health. In addition to the vast increase in uh, use of cell phones in our country, we've seen a substantial increase over time in cell sites in the country, running from roughly 2,300 sites in 1987 to over 320,000 in 2017. Huge growth over the last decade. 
Cell antennas can vary uh, greatly in terms of their size. As you can see here, here's a macro cell. This can be anywhere from like 100 feet in this case, and it's disguised as a pine tree, I think, some kind of evergreen tree, to a macro cell of 200 to 400 feet. Fairly new on the horizon is these small cells, which you can see more examples here, which can be mounted on light poles or utility poles. And um, the new generation of cell phones uh, or cellular technology is going to rely very heavily on these small cells because they're going to need so many uh, of, of these to support the fifth generation or 5G. Uh, in most of these sites, you'll probably see on the, somewhere on the poll a uh, warning sign that the FCC has approved that if you get any closer than, um, than where this sign is, uh, you will actually exceed the FCC exposure guidelines, uh, which in my opinion and the opinion of many scientists are completely inadequate anyway, and we'll talk more about that. So now let me just give you a real brief overview of what the uh, research looks at looks like, uh, first focusing on the cancer risk. Over here you can see a glioma, this is a section of the brain, this is the glial tissue, glial cells, which are the supporting cells for the neurons in the brain. This is a meningioma, which is the outer covering of the brain. These are tumors we're looking at. Uh, much of the research has focused on animal models, particularly rats, uh, to a lesser extent mice and other species, because they're a good analog uh, for humans. Uh, and you can actually do experimental studies on animal models, which you cannot do really with humans. So as I mentioned, IARC in 2011, an expert working group consisting of 31 experts from around the world, including members of the CDC and the National Cancer Institute, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and National Cancer Institute, uh, concluded at the end of a, of a meeting and a review of the literature that uh, radiofrequency radiation is possibly carcinogenic to humans. Many scientists today feel that it's time for IARC to re-review the literature given all the research that's been published since 2011 to upgrade this to at least probably carcinogenic to humans, if not, not actually carcinogenic to humans. Uh, there have been some major epidemio human epidemiologic studies that have looked at uh, the brain, can brain cancer risk um, that have been published in recent years. The Interphone study was actually reviewed as part of the IARC review. Uh, Interphone found a, a, in its main body of the paper a 40% increase in brain tumor risk, glioma risk, brain cancer risk that is, for a group 1,640 or more hours. Buried in an appendix where they controlled for one of the problems with the study, a participation bias, uh, the, the estimates actually grew to about an 80% increased risk. Uh, this got buried in a second appendix uh, with some text saying why you shouldn't even pay attention to this analysis. Subsequent analyses of the interphone data done by researchers have found, making different assumptions about the data, found uh, that the, these conclusions are quite robust. Furthermore, they found that the risks are much greater on the side of the head where people predominantly use their cell phone and that in, in some of the analysis they found that the uh, people who used the phone for fewer than 1,640 hours also had a significantly increased risk of glioma. Leonard Hardell in, in Sweden, this was a 13-nation study, by the way, the Interphone study. It was partially funded by the WHO, and, and much of the funding came from industry in uh, the, these 13 nations. Uh, and the, gr the group of researchers um, tended, well, the paper, the pooled paper, with the pooled data tended to downplay the findings, shifting the focus to uh, brain tumor registry data, which was really misguided because there were problems with the brain tumor registry that they were citing. Hardell has done a number of studies. He's actually the pioneer in this field. And he did some reanalysis of a couple of his studies using similar assumptions in terms of the age groupings and the uh, cutoffs, and found very similar findings from his data that pretty much corresponded with what the Interphone study showed. This is a French study with four sites in France, and they found a much higher risk estimate, roughly a threefold risk 
from fewer hours, cumulative hours of self-call time. Now, glioma, fortunately, is a fairly rare form of brain cancer in, in terms of uh, annual incidence. However, if you live to age 70, you're talking about a lifetime risk somewhere between 1 in 200 to 1 in 250. So if we cut that risk, essentially if we double the risk, it's, it's cutting that estimate then down to 100 to 125 people, uh, one person would be getting a glioma. Focusing on children a little, some of the modeling research has shown that the child's brain absorbs twice as much radiation as the adult brain. The radiation guidelines uh, for handset use in the US or internationally don't take into account uh, differences in anatomy. There's one size fits all, regardless of whether you're a 250 pound male or a 25 pound child. Yet the, the skull of the uh, five-year-old child will absorb about 10 times as much radiation as the skull of the adult. There's one completed a brain tumor risk study with children, a case control study like the Interphone study, looked at 7 to 19 year old children from four countries. Overall, they did not find a significant risk. It was elevated at 36%. The risk estimates were higher in three of the four countries, but for some reason in Norway, they actually had a lower risk estimate as compared to the control group. Interestingly, buried in this paper too, was a finding where they actually had cell phone company records uh, on a subgroup of the children. Largely in the, in the bulk of the paper, they relied on parental reports of the child's use. In that subgroup, they found that children with 2.8 or more years of cell phone use had roughly a doubling of risk, and that was significant. And that gets ignored in the discussion in the abstract of the paper. Uh, there's just a lot of pressure on the scientists, and I think in large part because of their funding source industry, at least in part, if not wholly, uh, to downplay any risks that they find and sort of divert attention to their own data when they do find risks. There is an, another study called Moby Kids, which is actually the parallel study to uh, the Interphone study. The data were collected in 2009 to 2014. We're still waiting for final results on that study. So that should shed greater light. It's a larger sample than cephalo on what the risks are to children in terms of brain tumor risk. This study was originally called for in 1999 by the FDA. Uh, they, uh, they nominated to the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences that the National Toxicology Program, or NTP, studied in an experimental using study using animal models the effects of long-term exposure to cell phone radiation. What they ultimately concluded which largely came from a group of independent experts. Here again, the government experts tended to downplay the findings when they first came out. But the expert group upgraded the findings. And so in the final report, they're reporting clear evidence of tumors in the hearts of male rats. Uh, these tumors are malignant schwannomas. The Schwann cells are also a site for tumor risk in, in humans. But in the humans, the increased risk is in is in the head. It's a this called vestibular schwannoma. It's, it's a tumor on the main nerve from the ear to the brain. Scientists, I don't believe, looked at these cells in, in the in the rats. And I listened to virtually all of the three-day peer review, and I, th I think that question came up. So they don't have data on whether it affected uh, the, that nerve in the, in the the rats. The, the study. So this is clear evidence. This is. This is the highest standard that the NTP provides. This is not possibly, probably, this is evidence. They also found uh, some evidence of tumors in the brains of male rats. This also corresponds to what we're seeing in humans, malignant gliomas, which we looked at just previously. Uh, interestingly, and nobody's made too much of this, both of these types of cells, the Schwann cells and the glial cells, produce myelin which is a fatty substance that occurs on the nerves uh, within our body. Uh, the Schwann cells are in the peripheral nervous system, glial cells in the central nervous system. Uh, so we have some strong coincidences between what we're seeing in the male rats and what we're seeing in humans. Uh, also, in talking to a biophysicist, he had a theory that myelinated nerves serve as antennas. And so this could be concentrating the radiation that comes from these devices in specific parts of the body. We'll come back to myelination in a little bit.
when we talk about hypersensitivity. They also found some evidence of tumors in the adrenal glands of male rats. And for the mice and the female rats, they found some evidence, but they considered it equivocal because the patterns didn't match what they expected to see. They sort of downplayed the findings in terms of direct application, but not as much as the FDA did, trying to totally dismiss this $30 million study that we've been waiting for, that the FDA has been waiting for since 1999. Normally, this study should have taken maybe five to 10 years at very most, but they ran into a number of obstacles, including funding, and then finding a contractor who could do the study. Uh, and then they sat on the data, I think, for a number of years before finally releasing it. Other findings in the study, which are critical, include DNA damage in the brains of the male and female mice and rats, increased degeneration in the hearts of the male and female rats, decreased birth weights in the rats exposed prenatally. And this is a finding that you have to dig through the appendix to find, but I was looking for it because an early Air Force finding found, early Air Force study looking at microwave radiation exposure at much lower levels than used in this study. This was pre-cell phones. The military had a big interest in this because of the use of radar. Found a three-fold increase in overall tumor risk in the animals exposed long-term to microwave radiation. So digging through the appendices, and I suggested to them in the final report, they actually put this analysis in the main body of the paper, but they ignored my suggestion. You find that the highest overall cancer incidence was in the middle exposure groups, not the highest exposure group. And you can see fairly substantial differences there that were indeed statistically significant, uh, 42 to 46 percent in the two middle exposure groups compared to 27 percent in the control group. They also found for the lowest exposure groups, greater non-malignant tumor incidence versus the sham control. Nobody's paying much attention to these findings. I think they're extremely critical. Part of the criticism of the study uh, is that they used exposures, full body exposures that were much higher than you would typically get uh, from a cell phone. They're more comparable to the partial body exposures, so that the head or the body exposures you get from a cell phone. But this was a full body exposure. But interestingly, the Ramazzini Institute in Italy basically rep replicates the key NTP result uh, in terms of the heart schwannoma, and they used much lower exposures. In fact, they found it at 0.1 watts per kilogram compared to exposures ranging from 1.5 to 6 watts per kilogram in the NTP study. This study has yet to receive a whole lot of attention in the media. Actually, neither study got a whole lot of attention in the media, believe it or not. And the New York Times report on the, on the um, NTP study, uh, I think, totally missed the boat and, and was in the direction of problem minimization. And yet, reporters from the New York Times and other papers had interviewed me and other people, and then they just ignored what we had to say about the study. There are other health risks that have been found in humans. The evidence generally is not as strong. Uh, I mentioned glioma. Acoustic aroma or the Schwann cells on that nerve from the ear to the brain, meningioma, which is the outer covering of the brain, parotid gland, which is the largest salivary gland, pituitary gland, and most recently the thyroid gland. A study out of Yale University School of Medicine and the Connecticut Department of Public Health found not quite significantly increased risk, but almost. It was marginally significant increased risk, particularly in the males, of thyroid gland tumors. We're seeing an epidemic of thyroid gland tumors, which this may uh, be partially responsible for. And there is one case series of four women who received, who, uh, who had breast cancers, multifocal tumors, uh, in the location of the breasts where they stored their cell phone for significant periods of time. My, I've heard they, they've been accumulating, research has been accumulating other cases. Uh, but there hasn't been much since that first report in the literature that I'm aware of. The strongest evidence, probably even more so than the brain tumor risk, is for sperm damage in the males, uh, male infertility, and in females, miscarriage and preterm birth. Uh, there's lesser evidence, but there's definitely a body of research that's accumulating. Uh, with regard to children, there hasn't been a lot of studies, though they tend to find is from prenatal and early childhood exposures, increased headaches, hearing problems, impaired memory, and a recent study replicated a finding in adolescents uh, in terms of figural memory for kids who use the phone on their right ear. 
uh, increased incidence of ADHD, and there's actually animal model studies suggesting this as well for the an animal analog of ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity. Uh, and there's a couple of papers by a researcher at Harvard, Martha Herbert, who says that this may be at least a cofactor for autism, if not a direct cause. Uh, one of the phenomena with very low exposure to microwave radiation is increased um, penetration or opening of the blood-brain barrier, which can then allow chemical toxins into the brain that are in the circulatory system. Electrohypersensitivity, uh, there's a range of symptoms that people experience and attribute to their exposures either to uh, microwave radiation or power line frequencies, uh, and includes headaches, fatigue, insomnia, uh, ringing of the ears or tinnitus, heart palpitations. Uh, this is an interesting uh, table from a paper comparing the symptoms of electrohypersensitivity uh, to the symptoms of demyelination. The most common form of that is multiple sclerosis. There's quite a bit of overlap in the symptoms. Here, too, we're talking about the myelin-producing cells, so there's reason to think that there may be a connection between these diseases. We can talk more about that in the Q&A session. The cell tower studies, there's been a, roughly a dozen epidemiologic studies showing associations between proximity to a cell tower over a long period of time and various kinds of effects, mostly neurobehavioral, in some cases cancer incidence. All of these studies, because they're ecological observational studies and not experimental studies, have alternative explanations. It's hard to control for confounding. Uh, largely, uh, there's an excellent review by uh, Blake Levin and Henry Lai. Uh, you have to rely on the, on the animal model studies, the experimental studies showing all kinds of adverse effects from oxidative stress due to low intensity exposures to uh, radio frequency fields, particularly microwaves. <laughs> the International EMF Scientist Appeal calls for stronger regulation of electromagnetic fields and health warnings. It's been signed by 247 scientists who have all published peer-reviewed research on electromagnetic fields. I did a, a search in, a, in an archive EMF portal and I found 2,000 unduplicated count of, of papers that these scientists have published on electromagnetic fields and, and biology or health. Uh, these scientists come from 42 nations and they made some, a very strong statement, which I won't read now, uh, when you look at the slide, regarding the, the effects that the literature documents that they feel calls for uh, warning the public and stronger regulations. So you'd think, given this large body of researchers, we'd ha have no problem with getting governments to adopt stronger regulations and health warnings. Unfortunately, as with many other issues like tobacco or asbestos or various chemicals or global warming for that matter, there is a body of researchers who are basically uh, defending uh, the industry-promoted guidelines that have been adopted by the FCC and by the ICNRP, which is the international equivalent of the FCC, uh, which the WHO relies upon. And very recently, a team of investigative journalists identified 14 scientists, actually named them, who defend these obsolete exposure guidelines, and they do so by preparing biased reviews of the literature for various health agencies around the world. At least eight of these individuals have had industry research funding. There may be another dozen EMF scientists around the world who are take a similar position as these uh, researchers. But mostly in the US, we're hearing from non-EMF researchers, people who've never published research, typically physicists, engineers, sometimes oncologists, who are defending the FCC guidelines, saying the only risks are short-term and due to heating. Let's touch a little bit on policy. 1996, the Congress adopted the Telecommunications Act. It has a section that basically says that no state or local government entity may regulate the placement, construction, or modification of personal wireless service facilities, aka cell towers, on the basis of environmental effects of radio frequency emissions to the extent that such emissions comply with FCC regulations. This causes a great deal of problems for communities that are trying to fight cell towers because the courts have interpreted environmental effects to be health effects. So you can't argue it on health grounds, you have to hire, basically argue it on aesthetic grounds if you don't want a cell tower in front of your home or in your backyard. 
The government, our government has really been disingenuous and irresponsible on this issue, like most governments in the world. They do have a huge conflict of interest in that they sell, this, they sell licenses for the spectrum. So one small piece of spectrum that they just sold, they, they netted in the auction $700 million, and they were disappointed because they thought they could get a billion dollars for it. Also, state and local governments collect, on average, 19% of your cell phone bill. And then, of course, there's all the jobs it creates and the money that comes in terms of, I assume some of these companies pay taxes, but you never know in this day and age. <laughs> so the government has a huge conflict of interest here. Uh, both parties are complicit in protecting this industry and are heavily lobbied by this industry. They've, on the one hand, they say we need more evidence, but then they don't fund the evidence or they delay the production of the one study they did fund. And uh, we've had some agencies, cities of Boston and Philadelphia, who've submitted to the FCC complaints that basically there's no leadership in the government, there's a complete pass-the-buck attitude. The FCC is, doesn't have any health expertise and has been irresponsible on this issue. Senator Blumenthal, in a recent exchange in a Senate Commerce hearing where industry officials presented, concluded the hearing saying, so there really is no research ongoing, we're kind of flying blind here as far as health and safety is concerned with regard to 5G. We can go beyond that and we could also say with regard to 1G, 2G, 3G, and 4G, we've been flying blind. A couple of years ago I tried to find experts within our federal health agencies. I found, a, I found basically one person, he's retired now, the person I interviewed at the FDA who's supposedly the most knowledgeable and supposed to be advising the FCC was a complete denialist with regard to uh, long-term risks. He was the head of a unit that was responsible for this topic. Turned out later when I searched him on LinkedIn, he was a nuclear engineer. Um, he's since moved on, and I suspect his successor isn't any more knowledgeable. And uh, the interview lasted like two hours, and essentially we got down to the point where we were debating studies, and it showed to me that he clearly didn't understand how medical or biologic research worked or epidemiologic research worked, and was just looking to dismiss studies. And that's how he was able to maintain his sanity, I guess, by um, just ignoring the whole issue. There's an interesting monograph looking into the FCC and how it's been captured by industry. And this has gone on even before the cellular problem with regard to earlier it was the broadcast industry controlled the FCC. It's a perfect institute of regulatory capture. These other agencies are supposed to be involved in a work group. The work group turned out to be a sham when I investigated it. It has no official functions. They would meet over a phone one, one hour uh, three times a year. The prior session was uh, five people. There's been a variety of actions at the local level, at the federal level, trying to get, including the GAO here. There's, all this information is on my saferemr.com website in greater detail. Uh, the GAO, most recently, Montgomery County, Maryland, is suing the FCC over the exposure guidelines, or wants to sue. They petitioned the court to allow the suit. We'll see if it happens. It's in the Ninth Circuit. A number of organizations have also called for changes in the FCC's RF limits or testing. The FCC opens up these requests for public input. They did one in 2003, another in 2013, and then they never do anything with the filings. The most recent filing has over a thousand submissions, many thousands of documents, studies submitted, and they just ignore it. Maybe I should stop since time is up. I can finish this perhaps in the beginning of the Q&A session. Thank you. Deep.
Rosenberg, tune in to the Song Circle every Friday afternoon at 1.30 p.m. Turn their backs on the grisly scenes Trace to the privileged sons And your death will come soon You never know what you'll hear next. Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the Feminist Film Night and Planned Parenthood fundraiser on Friday, August 16th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater in Portland. This Planned Parenthood fundraiser will screen A Girl Like Her, which tells the hidden history of over a million young women who became pregnant in the 1950s and 60s and were banished to maternity homes to give birth and surrender their babies for adoption. And Jane, an abortion service, a documentary of Jane. The Chicago-based women's health group performed nearly 12,000 safe illegal abortions between 1969 and 1973. There will be a conversation after the films between a former Jane, Judith Arcana, and a girl like her, Lonnie Jo Lee. Again, that's the Feminist Film Night and Planned Parenthood fundraiser on Friday, August 16th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater, 2522 Southeast Clinton Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. This is KBOO Portland. The time is 11.59. Coming up next is Moving On with Lori Sonnenfeld. KBOO programming is made possible by KBOO member listeners and support from Oregon Zoo Summer Concerts, presenting Steve Earle and the Dukes with Lucas Nelson and Promise of the Real, Sunday, August 11th. All ages welcome. Tickets and more information is available online at zooconcerts.com. You're listening to KBOO Portland at 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM, and on the web at kboo.fm. (laughs) 